Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're seeing these great divergence of stock investors and capital markets recovering faster. We talked about that 20, 22% rise in the S&P since the bottom, but the economy getting worse and worse. They're never one and the same, but they're more disconnected now than ever. And people, individuals are gonna feel that in their personal economies and in their personal finances for months. Coming up, one of my favorite business journalists, Caleb Silver, editor of Investopedia, a curator of all things emanating from Wall Street. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM News, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. We are on NPR One, and we are now on Spotify. More at vpm.org. Joining me from New York is Caleb Silver, veteran business journalist. He's now the editor-in-chief of Investopedia, uh, one of my favorite investing writers and editors and curators in general. Uh, sir, how is it going? It's going well. We're, we're maintaining here in New York City. I'm up in Harlem. People are being respectful, but people are also getting impatient. You could see it this weekend when the weather was nice and the bathing suits were on throughout the park. I don't understand looking at... Uh, these videos of kind of people at the Christopher Street Pier and the like. You guys were there hearing all the ambulances. Everyone knows anyone who has been ill or, God forbid, in an ICU or worse. You hear about the uh, the issue that the city has with cadavers. How are people going out? People cannot take it anymore, especially when it gets nice. And, and especially younger folks, they've been working on, uh, you know, they've been running five miles a day. They've been doing the at-home gym sessions and the Pelotons, and they had to show it off. So, uh, you know, people are are starting to loosen up here and it's a little bit weird. You know, when you go out, even if you have a mask, you're good for about 15, 20 minutes and then you feel like there's just too many people around and you can't wait to get home. So this has really changed our psychology and our feelings about being inside in our comfortable homes. So is Investopedia continuing right now as a virtual organism? I mean, the, the numbers are huge for all manner of portals and news sites. You saw the New York Times numbers and everything. Are you just working virtually with your colleagues? Absolutely. And it turns out we could do that and we could do it on a dime. So, you know, I think we, we may have started working from home about a week or two before most major offices did just so we could see if it would work. And turns out digital publishing uh, and writing content and, and being a journalist, you can do from home. It's better when you get, get out and knock on doors, but we can do it. And across the dot dash family of sites that we're a part of, it turns out that we can do this very well. So we won't be in any hurry to go back to work, especially because our offices are in the Times Square area. So yeah, explain Dot Dash to me because I don't believe it's a household name. IAC, which Barry Diller is the CEO of, it's this quiet, this sleeping giant. I, I think on the West Side Highway in Chelsea, it owns what? Match.com, uh, Tinder, uh, Vimeo, and others. I think he, does he personally own the Daily Beast or is that IAC as well? It's part of the IAC's publishing unit, but but uh, Barry Diller is very close to that to that uh, publisher, which has you know pretty been pretty good. The IAC owns Angie's List and Home Advisor. It owns Vimeo, but it has grown, incubated, and spun out uh, dozens of companies over the years. A lot of which you probably hear about today. Expedia is in that family. Um, it's owned various companies over time, and it grows digital businesses. Uh, it acquires them, brings them together, and then returns money to shareholders by way of an IPO or, or selling them off. So it's got this great track record of doing that. And Dot Dash, you'll remember as about.com. This was Internet 1.0. Oh, the mining company. The New York Times for, for I, I guess, a few years owned about.com. It was that other search engine. I think it had human contact and human curation, but it didn't exactly work out for them. And now it's folded into this giant that you guys have called Dot Dash. So Dot Dash is a good 12 or 13 different brands across what we call high-intent sites. We are Investopedia, obviously the finance and investing part. Our Citrus site is called The Balance, more personal finance. But The Balance was about.com slash money. Uh, Trip Savvy is our travel site that used to be about.com slash travel. The, the home uh, improvement and cooking site is called Spruce. That used to be about.com, you know, lifestyle. So that in, enormous uh, website, that conglomeration of different verticals, was was broken down into individual verticals by our CEO, Neil Vogel, who realized with his team years ago that the internet was getting very deep, right? Um, and Google was about the internet, so you couldn't be about it. But, but users, readers, want deep knowledge on particular topics. So he said, let's go vertical with all these sites. And it turned out to be a winning strategy, turned the company around. Um, and now we're one of the biggest publishers across the family of any 
publishers out there in media today. Caleb, take me back to your past lives. I met you when you were at uh, CNN. You were the business editor at CNN. And before that, you were at Bloomberg. You know this stuff. Uh, you know, one of the challenges is to process the esoterica for a mass audience. And you do have pressure for clicks and for scalability and whatnot. And at the same time, I know you, you have enough respect for finance and voices in the industry and the people that you follow to not, not dumb it down and sugarcoat it so much. Where does, you know, Take me back to your journey, even going back to graduate school when you first came to Bloomberg and, and CNBC, I'm sorry, and CNN, and what it is right now. Right, CNBC is one of the few places I haven't worked, but um, my journey is pretty interesting. I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I actually grew up in the restaurant business, uh, working for Greek families, uh, growing up there, and there's a lot of really good restaurants there. I was doing that up until I was about 22, 23, even through through college. I went out to Colgate out here on the East Coast. But I went back, I was working in the restaurant business, and I started getting into TV journalism. Bought myself a TV camera, started stringing for the news, started shooting environmental educational documentaries, eventually made my way, and I'm taking you way deep, down to South America to shoot environmental educational documentaries. Went to grad school at NYU right around 1996, 97, 98, when the internet bubble was forming. But I was still stringing as a cameraman. I owned a TV camera. I knew how to shoot and edit. Uh, so I was making my living doing that. And then uh, through graduate school, I got an internship at Bloomberg and realized, you know, Bloomberg was kind of in its infancy in terms of being a media brand. It had this terminal business, which you're well aware of, right, that makes billions and billions of dollars. But it was trying to create media and news so that uh, it could have some... Uh, content for its subscribers. So I got an early start in the TV business there, and that was right as the internet bubble was forming. And then, of course, it exploded famously, and I was still at Bloomberg, became a business journalist, went from you know restaurant manager and cook to business journalist, and, and with a stop as an environmental educational documentarian in between. And that took me eventually to CNN and CNN-FN. I don't know if you remember CNN-FN. I do. I remember Myron Kandel. I remember doing, you know, it had its own dedicated channel. I remember when CNN was, you know, there was CNN money. Everything was, the future was so bright in 2000 with the AOL Time Warner merger. Sure. You mentioned Myron Kandel, the godfather of business journalism on TV, right? Who can forget Myron's take on the Lou Dobbs show? And, sure. And Myron, Myron is a legend. I'm still friends with him. Um, but eventually made my way to CNN. They folded CNN FN when they realized they couldn't compete with CNBC and Bloomberg uh, for, the, for the eyeballs. Um, but they kept the business unit and they put me in charge of the business unit. And I stayed there, did a stint in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer when we launched that show in the middle of Hurricane Katrina. Became Ali Velshi's producer, who's the terrific business anchor and anchor on, uh, on MSNBC right now. And then worked there for 10 good years uh, at CNN, running eventually business news for the network, which was a great experience for me. But we, I was there through the 2008-2009 financial crisis. I was at Bloomberg for the 1999-2000 internet bubble. And now I'm at Investopedia for, uh, for this version of epi uh, economic crisis. So what you do have at Investopedia is an investor sentiment index, the anxiety index. You say it measures traffic spikes to fear-based terms around the economy, around markets and personal finance. And you do clock it at all-time highs right now? It was at all-time highs a few weeks ago, about four weeks ago to be exact. It usually spikes, and this measures fear-based terms. So it measures fear-based terms across the markets, things like bear market, um, volatility, um, double dip. It uh, measures uh, economic terms, recession, depression. It also measures personal finance terms, liquidity, bankruptcy. So when we see traffic spikes, people looking and searching up those articles and what they mean and what they should do about that if it comes their way, um, we can tell anxiety is pretty high. And it has been screaming like a four-year-old in a toy store when it's time to go. It's mellowed out a little bit recently, but people are very anxious right now, not just about the markets, but around their personal finances. So we're seeing that because we have so many readers who are coming to us either directly or through Google every day. We know what they care about and what they feel about. It, it allows us to have our finger on the pulse of the individual investor in a very unique way. So what is the market telling you right now? Obviously, uh, March 23rd was... Uh, I, I think it was down at its peak, what, 32%. It was a true bear market. And then you've had a rally of about 30%. There seems to be you know, remnants of that melt-up psychology that's still there. On, on days when you have the market down, suddenly it seems to end up again. Uh, who is pushing it up and what are these investors romancing exactly? Because we're still losing millions of jobs. Right. Well, you and I know that the market is really moved by big institutional investors using algorithmic trading, um, hyper-fast trading where they can execute millions of trades a second even, and they really move the market. But individual investors are a meaningful part of that 
uh, of that galaxy in that we all have mutual funds or 401ks or IRAs, and that is run by institutional investors. But if you look at what actual individual investors you and me might be doing through our brokerage accounts, uh, depending on our age, those of us in the you know, Gen Xers have seen crisis like this before. We're getting a little bit more conservative, but we are buying blue chip stocks that have been on discount uh, for several weeks now since we hit those market bottoms in March. If you look to the younger crowd, the, the millennials and the Gen Zs, they are buying some pretty risky assets right now. And some of them are just starting their investing lives, but you can see them chasing marijuana stocks that are down 80, 90, uh, 95%. You can see them chasing airline stocks, which have been absolutely decimated. You can see them making risky bets with ETFs. It's not a widespread issue, but you can see the risk factor depending on the age. When you get to older folks, right, the baby boomers, They've seen a couple of these before and they don't want to mess around with their money. So they're going to cash, they're going to fixed income, they're also going to government bonds because the Federal Reserve has said it would back that market. So it's been a really interesting uh, movement and movement in the investor psychology as we've gone from market lows up to now about 20, 22%. And don't look now, but I do believe that the tech heavy and volatility heavy and growth heavy and maybe uh, P.E. heavy <laughs> NASDAQ is flat for the year. It's back up to 9,000. If I told you starting the year, I mean, yes, you're Amazon, Apple, uh, Google, the horsemen of tech and whatnot, and one pandemic and 30 million job losses later, the NASDAQ would be flat come May. What would you have told me? I would have bought it because these are the biggest stocks and the most widely held, and as they go, so goes the market. But I cannot believe also, I'm not going to pretend like I knew the NASDAQ was going to bounce back, but it really is four or five stocks pushing the market higher. We see it in the S&P. These are the biggest components of the S&P 500, which is a market-weighted index. They're about 20% of the entire index, just those five companies, Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Google. That's an enormous concentration in just a few stocks. So as Jimmy Clip would say, the harder they come, the harder they fall. We better hope they don't fall because they're holding the market up on their shoulders. Yeah, Apple, I did see. I mean, it has had not the greatest years. It is down from its peak of $330 back down to $303. It's not that bad, but it totes a market cap of $1.3 trillion. Amazon, which is getting pilloried for uh, Amazon Prime and Whole Foods grocery delivery, it's not exactly working as planned when the entire world wants free on-demand shipping. That stock is, again, near an all-time high. It sports a market capitalization of $1.2 trillion. It is worrisome in that when you started off in this industry, I guess at the turn of the century, you did notice that we did have this lopsided nature of indices where a couple of richly valued tech companies controlled the entire fate of the market in 2000, and we know how that ended. Yeah, that doesn't end very well. Um, and what's remarkable about Amazon, you mentioned that it's at all-time highs. Jeff Bezos, the CEO, said the other day they're going to plow $4 billion of profit into dealing with COVID issues in this next quarter. So don't expect a return to shareholders in the form of a profit. Amazon is big enough and has the swagger to do that. Um, and I thought the market was not going to really like that. But you know what? They're back to buying Amazon again because it's really one of the only games in town right now. But it is amazing that we've seen these, these companies sort of with that type of leadership but what else are you going to do? I mean, the, the digital businesses and the Amazon Prime and even the Whole Foods delivery uh, has actually been a boon to Amazon. And guess what? They also own Amazon Web Services, the biggest cloud storage company on the planet where we're putting all this data, including this conversation that we're having. So um, their business is doing just fine and they'll do whatever they need to do to survive. Caleb, I think you hit the nail on the head when you called it swagger, because I always, I always posited that Jeff Bezos, the founder, the richest man on the planet, the founder of Amazon, and he's now... The, the you know the owner of the Washington Post he's a rocket man he has all these other side ventures and whatnot he is a a, a, a studio mogul whatever you want to call him uh, that he now benefits from what we could call this reality distortion force field which was used to describe the late Steve Jobs where he tells Wall Street hey you could take it or leave it this is what I'm doing he's not someone that has a gun to his head for same store sales or uh, we don't like your Amazon Web Services margins or when are you going to announce a fatter net profit. We're going we're gonna to punish you. If anything, he comes back in the middle of this pandemic the other day and says, hey, look, uh, our numbers have been through the roof. And yeah, you might not like it, but tough. I'm plowing $4 billion back into the business. What other mogul kind of gets that pass from Wall Street in this surreal environment? Right. He, and he even said, take a seat. You know, sit down because we're not, this is what we're going to do. But you know what? He's been that way forever. You've met him in the early days when you were 
uh, probably back at business week, the, the raucous laugh, the, 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 the wild expression on his face. He's always been this way. And guess what? Um, you know, he's laughing last as we're basically relying on them for just about everything right now. So it's, it's just peculiar how, how it happened. But here they are, the most powerful company in the world. What do you think about their foray? And I know I'm taking you into a bit of a cul-de-sac at, at Whole Foods. I kind of laughed it off in that, uh, you know, a few years ago, they shelled out $14 billion in cash for Whole Foods, which was struggling as other grocery stores and even Walmart moved into the organic and fresh business. He comes in sight unseen, offers this money. And what's so striking about that is the market was never going to punish him or laud him for blowing $14 billion on such a non-correlating bauble. Uh, but now it's become at least psychologically core to their business because all of these people are using purported Whole Foods home delivery with Amazon Prime, which isn't exactly working right now. A few days ago, he had to deal with a, a walkout of workers who aren't happy with the extent of the conditions and the pay that they're getting. But again, if you look at it in the grand scheme of the cash flow statement and the balance sheet of, of Amazon, it's never going to move the needle for the parent company, for better or for worse. I know. And they are having issues with it because nobody had any idea the demand would be this intense. And it is so intense right now. But that strategy is going to look smarter every day going forward once they figure it out. And believe me, that $4 billion that they're, that they're using this quarter, they'll be figuring it out with that. Because now you can get everything at Amazon. You can get all your packages dropped off there. Um, you know, you can get your groceries. Everything can come to your house or you can all have it delivered to your local Whole Foods. Plus, you know, he's in on the health part of the market. Don't forget, uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon have ambitions of cornering the health market. So a good way into the health market is through the food that we eat. You know, one of the things that I believe Myron Candell and Lou Dobbs, the, the old um, – the, the formerly uh, financially sober Lou Dobbs of Moneyline fame, who I would watch at the turn of the century. One of the things they were covering religiously in 2000 was uh, a judge – very nearly breaking up Microsoft. Microsoft, which was the big, bad, monopolistic giant. It seems kind of quaint when you look back on it that they missed all of mobile and the world really moved away from the desktop and uh, people aren't that worried about Internet Explorer right now. But you do hear whispers, Caleb, about Amazon now being a little too, too big to fail, a little too powerful. It's in the crosshairs of the Trump administration. He doesn't like Jeff Bezos because of the Washington Post. But when you sit back and you look at the uh, swaths of cloud capacity that they control, of retail capacity that they control, uh, the anti-competitive news that came out a few days ago that they were mining data on uh, small business merchants to kind of come out and ape the things that they were making and snuff them out. Do you think that these guys are going to run into antitrust risk soon? Again, it's worth $1.2 trillion. I think that is their future for the next few decades. They will always run into that. Will there be, will there be enough um, um, strength in, on the political force to actually do something about it? People have been calling for the breakup of Amazon for years, but now that, now that we really need them, we see how much they actually control. Um, so I would expect a lot more pressure on that. The funny thing is if you broke it up, it might even be more valuable to some of, of its parts versus this one big Amazon, this conglomerate that has all of these multiple tentacles. If you broke up cloud services on its own, it's one of the biggest businesses in the world, right? So it might actually be beneficial to Amazon and its shareholders if it is broken up. So I don't think they, they lose too much sleep over that. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Caleb Silver, veteran business journalist who is now the editor-in-chief of Investopedia. Uh, you now commandeer this, this, is this daily newsletter, do I see, that, that reaches... Two daily newsletters reached 1.2 million people. One of the benefits of working with Investopedia is the audience is massive. It's The site is 21 years old, Robin, and in internet years, that's like 210 years old. Mm. So we've got a, a loyal readership, uh, and people come to us, you know, whether they're going into college for the first time, and they're studying economics or finance, or they're taking their first job, or even, you know, active investors come to us on a regular basis and retirees. So we have this audience around the world, um, 18 to 80, I like to say, and I started writing, taking over our daily newsletters. There's one that goes out in the morning called The Express, which is an express read on what to expect today with some, a couple of big stories in there. And then the afternoon one called Market Sum. And when I started putting my name on it, following the lead of, of some of the great business newsletters out there like Axios and, and what Andrew Ross Sorkin does with DealBook, 
putting my name on it and taking ownership and my voice behind it, we found that the audience grew, became more engaged. And I have all these readers who write back to me. They're very uh, into what we're, we're talking about. They, they call me out when I'm wrong. They compliment us when we do something right. Uh, but it's great to have this feedback from readers all over the world that are active investors looking to get smarter. And it's one of the favorite things about my job. Um, but it's also pretty intimidating when you have that many people getting your note every day. You know, I haven't followed individual companies and individual tickers for the longest time. I'm more of that mindset. And you know the revolution that has taken hold of kind of be the market, don't beat the market. And Vanguard has grown massively since the financial crisis. Vanguard, the the massive index fund company and exchange-traded fund company. It's one thing to kind of have a Yahoo Finance out there. It's another thing to think back to 1999 and 2000 and, and CNBC's numbers when we were religiously following individual companies and waiting with bated breath for earnings reports. Right now, I'm kind of zen about the whole thing, Caleb. I mean, I'm, I'm much more inclined to think risk in terms of U.S., U.S. small, U.S. large, foreign, emerging markets. Um, I'm a little more resigned to what happens out there, and I kind of look at, at, at things in terms of buying opportunities when entire markets fall. Right. Well, that might be a sign of our age, Robin, because, um, you know, we're I'm smart enough to know that I'm not smart enough to be able to pick stocks very well. And I've tried it many times over the course of my career and I follow it pretty closely. So I'm not good at that. Um, I prefer indexing and, you know, following the horse race of individual companies. It's fun if you are into that, just like fantasy sports is fun if you are into that. But it's also doesn't really get you anywhere. You know, it's a it's a market of stocks. So it's fun to watch the horse race and CNBC and and Fox Business and Bloomberg do a nice job of that. But I, I agree with you. It's more of a macro picture. And especially right now, the economy, the global economy is changing so much. Capitalism is being tried. Globalization is being tried in ways that we couldn't have imagined. We don't come out of this the same way. So I'm much more interested in the broader shift of, of the economy. What happens to things like our 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 concerns about climate change? Can we recreate a much more interesting way of looking at GDP and a a collective economy versus the horse race of which company is up, which company is down? That gets a little old after a while. Let me ask you about the Federal Reserve. You guys have a provocative article out on Vestipedia. The Federal Reserve spurs corporate bond bonanza. Low rates and the Federal Reserve's backing of corporate bonds opens floodgates. Now, a hundred years ago, I mean, a few years ago, this would have been so unthinkable. The financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 really shattered old taboos about what our central bank can and can't, should and should not do. Time was it only had kind of the the lever of interest rates. You wanted to keep inflation under control. You wanted to keep unemployment low. But they then started going out and buying mortgage bonds and other things to keep you know, in, in in addition to bringing rates to zero, they did qualitative, I'm sorry, quantitative easing. And now I think the new taboo is that they're out there backing corporate bonds. Ergo, you're seeing firms in the airline industry last week, they sold $32 billion in debt. Uh, Boeing, $25 billion deal that allowed to avoid it giving into the federal government's demands. Ford sold junk bonds worth $8 billion last month. Carnival Cruise Lines reportedly saw orders swelling to such an extent it increased its debt offering size to $4 billion from $3 billion in April. Uh, isn't this like this is taking the old definition of moral hazard times 50? Absolutely. But you know those expressions that run around Wall Street and business news desks, don't fight the Fed. This is the Fed put. This is all that. This is the Fed with a safety net. And the Fed reminds me of of Rambo when he's wearing one of those ammunition vests and every pocket has a different weapon in it, right? We didn't even know they had these weapons. But all of a sudden, as you say, they're back in the corporate bond market. They may even move into, into backing the equity market, which would be shocking. Um, but I never thought they'd go this far with the bond market and the junk bond market, uh, to say the least. So they're, they're rescuing what we call fallen angels which are these companies like Ford that had decent businesses but fell into hard times, but also um, they're backing riskier parts of the market. And we we just could never have imagined that they've become very brazen. But, uh, you know, investors can be very thankful that they've done everything that they've done because the market would be in much worse shape if it, if it hasn't. So explain that for our listeners, because I'm, I'm being pushed to, to kind of de-jargonize for a public radio audience, is the Federal Reserve is out there. It mans the biggest economy on the planet, the printing press, which in theory, at least, could print unlimited amounts of money. It's not like inflation or runaway inflation is plaguing us right now. When it goes out and not just buys government debt and mortgage debt, but corporate debt, enabling companies that otherwise would be on a glide path to bankruptcy. I just mentioned 
Carnival. I just mentioned Boeing. I just mentioned other airlines. That is, in effect, transitively supporting the stock market because once you buy all that debt out there, the, the voracious buyers might be searching for yield and returns in the next riskier class, which is equities. Absolutely. So it's like having uh, you know an uncle with unlimited pockets who's willing to always be the buyer of last resort. And the issue is that this economic crisis brought on by the coronavirus has basically shut down companies and economies at a full standstill right now. It's destroyed their balance sheets. They have no revenue. Um, they're not producing anything. So they're, they need to raise capital. And ways of raising capital include going to the debt market, right? Issuing debt, letting people own chunks of their debt, their obligation to pay it back. They were not able to find any buyers because the, they seem too risky. Their businesses seem way too uncertain because we have no idea how this is going to play out. The Federal Reserve steps in and you say it can print all the money it wants. Actually, the Treasury prints the money. The Federal Reserve asks for it and the Treasury is gladly giving it over to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve says we're going to be the buyer of last resort. We will be the, the, the last buyer here. If nobody else wants to buy it, we will support it. So we create a market for other investors if they want to participate in owning these bonds because it is backed by the Federal Reserve, which is backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. So it's a huge safety net, and they're doing that in corporate bonds. They're doing that in the ETF market, the exchange-traded fund market uh, in some classes. They're doing that in, in municipalities and cities that uh, issue a lot of debt and in states that are issuing a lot of debt. Plus, Robin, as you know what they normally do, which is they make sure there's liquidity in the banking system. Banks loan money to one another uh, through what we call the repo market overnight to make sure they have enough cash to, to make their loans. If they stop loaning to one another, which is what happened in the 2008-2009 crisis, the entire financial system freezes up. The Federal Reserve has stepped in and said, we are going to continue to fund the repo market to make sure banks have enough money to pass around to each other so none of them go under, so we don't have a liquidity crisis. They've done that. They continue to do that with tens of billions of dollars a day. So in these ways, they've stabilized the financial system so we don't have a liquidity crisis where Okay, but, but wants- Caleb, put liquidity aside for a minute. I'm looking at empty shopping malls. I'm looking at businesses that are so tentative about coming back that this is going to be such a shock. I'm looking at credit card quality and credit card delinquencies and residential tenants not paying rent. When does this catch up to the banking system, that banks have to start writing off bad loans, that it's not a matter of banks loaning between themselves, but the uh, the, the bankruptcy situation is of, of, of what you're seeing is an economic depression and an economic shock, an exogenous shock, just brings down the entire system. Liquidity be damned. Right. So all the things that I just mentioned are for building a bridge to the future when the economic shock stops. But between now and then, we are going to have a lot of bankruptcies. We're going to have a lot of foreclosures. Um, we're going to have a lot more layoffs. We're going to hear a lot more layoffs in the next month or two. It's going to be a terrible quarter for that, historic, in fact. So we're going to we're going to have to deal with that. But the the Fed's moves are actually trying to support the the economy when it gets back on its feet. But between now and then is a really dangerous time. And what we're seeing right now, Robin, is this perception and this split, this great divergence of stock investors and the capital markets recovering faster. We talked about that 20, 22% rise in the S&P since the bottom, but the economy getting worse and worse. They're never one and the same, but they're more disconnected now than ever. And people, individuals are gonna feel that in their personal economies and in their personal finances for months. Wow. Uh, I can't help thinking you guys have covered two megatrends quite a bit. Obviously, the hedge fund industry, which has always been uh, over this prolonged period of risk on since 2008 and 2009, where you could buy anything, where indexing worked for everyone, that they were warning that there was going to be a day when it was going to all fall apart and you need to be hedged and you need to have active managers. And you have another swath of the industry called robo-advisors, which are saying that you need to take yourself completely out of the equation and automate it because you're never going to have a strong enough stomach to buy the worst performing assets when they're most financially attractive. You're always going to be trend following and chasing last year's winners. Do you have any evidence of how these two buckets have done hedge funds and robo-advisors? Well, hedge funds have actually done very well in the last several months, but had not been doing well for several years leading up to this. Um, So, you know, that active management for the ultra wealthy always works to a certain extent because they're not just picking stocks for you. If you're a if you're a high net worth individual, they're handling everything from your estate planning to to helping you set yourself up for uh, more uh, tax breaks. Um, but hedge funds in general have had a, a good recovery over the last few months. But 
the passive investing world has come on strong over the last decade, really out of the last financial crisis. You, you remember, we didn't really have robo-advisors in 2008 and 2009. We barely had an iPhone. And they emerged out of the mobile, um, you know, the, the, the mobile technology world where now we could look at our portfolios on our handhelds, on our iPhones, um, and be able to actually manage our accounts that way. But it was actually started by Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. Of Vanguard, you know, the grand, sure. Right, the, the, uh, the godfather of the index fund. Um, who said you can't beat the market and why would you pay anybody extra uh, fees who promises you they can when they actually can't? So Vanguard was the first really with index funds, but then the ETF, the exchange-traded fund market, really grew out of that and has now become a $5 billion industry. So instead of me picking, is it going to be Apple? Is it going to be Amazon? Is it going to be Activision? I say, no, I want exposure to the technology sector. Let me buy an ETF that covers the technology industry and not take the risk on individual companies. The more we see that, the less need we have for that active management until we get into a crisis like this where some people really need some help. And you know, another huge uh, uh, bread and butter aspect of Wall Street and the brokerage industry that just went out with a whimper several months ago, I don't think it even got the coverage it, it would have merited just a few years ago, is that the, the stock commission is pretty much dead. All the big houses now are out there saying that we'll offer you free commissions. Come in and, and, and get a full relationship with us. We might make the money elsewhere on checking, on banking, on money market funds. You see uh, mega mergers happen between Schwab. You see TD Ameritrade out there. You see Fidelity and Vanguard with their own offerings. Time was that that you know you would be lucky to pay $20 for a commission, and you'd have to call an 800 number uh, to do that. And, and the commission is just gone right now. Caleb, I mean, I don't have to worry. I don't trade a lot, but I don't have to worry about uh, you know being docked twenty dollars every time I go in and buy an ETF or an individual security. So, how is the industry kind of thinking around that? Well, I asked Chuck Schwab that question because they were among the first to announce free trading, besides the Robin Hoods of the world. And Charles Schwab really was the founder of the discount brokerage. He he saw it was sixty five dollars to trade a stock back in the 70s and started a discount brokerage. And he said they wanted to remove the friction between the investor, the client, and the, and the execution that they wanted to make. And that $5, $6, $3, whatever fee that was uh, to trade was getting in the way. Guess what? They removed those maybe a year too soon because people have been trading their faces off, Robin, in the last four or five months throughout this crisis. People have been buying stocks two to one over selling them. They're more active wow. in their Fidelity accounts. They're more active in their E-Trade accounts. We've been looking at the earnings reports, the report cards from the online brokers over the last several weeks, and they are reporting record activity, record signups, and record trading. Uh, so they've got more clients signing up, and maybe they'll find ways to make money off of them here. But what we're seeing is a consolidation of the industry, as you mentioned, with some of those mergers because... Um, you know, trading was the commodity part of it. It's the financial services part, the college planning, the, the retirement planning, the estate planning, where they're trying to make their money through advice. That's where this industry is going. Caleb Silver of Investopedia, I have to take you into this cul-de-sac about the energy sector right now and the uh, the energy crisis, if you will, the oil crisis, the plunge in prices. You were in a past life a an environmental documentary maker. You you shot footage for Greenpeace and Ancient Forest International. I wonder what you're thinking about this industry right now. Time was when oil prices would fall to the teens or $20. People would just, uh, you know, any anything like hybrid technology or diesel technology would collapse. Biodiesels would go out the door. Recycling observance would plummet because people would get lazy again and they'd say, oh, gas is cheap. BTUs are cheap. You've also seen a disconnect right now with that. It seems like in, in many respects, the kind of the clean tech horses is out of the barn. Solar has continued. Wind has continued. I don't think people are necessarily buying Teslas. Uh, you know, it's the most highly valued car maker in the United States because it's a clean, green technology, but because it's a coveted, it's a better car. Right. I, I am shocked at how fast the energy complex has collapsed. Now, part of that was the corona crisis and, and the shutdown to the global economy, which killed demand and made this oversupply of oil so we have no place to put it. That's one thing. But it was also this split between OPEC and its allies called OPEC Plus, notably Saudi Arabia and Russia that had a very big disagreement on, on what supplies and production should be to stabilize prices. Those things happened at the same time, taking oil down to levels that you and I could never have imagined it being children of the 70s, for sure. Um, so that surprised Hey, speak me. for yourself. I'm a child of the 80s, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm a child of the 80s, a teenager in the 80s, but you and I could never have imagined oil at this level. Um, 
you know, we were filling up our hot rods for, uh, you know, three bucks a gallon. Anyway, so that, that surprised me. But what, what I'm hopeful for is that there was a movement in some areas uh, to create clean technologies and green technologies um, to combat climate change. And, you know, with oil at a certain price, it becomes more attractive. But when oil falls to a certain price, those renewables don't look as attractive for producers and those manufacturers. But I'm hoping that we have a, a change in the climate of consciousness, if you will, on the planet to say we don't need to reset our economy back to where it was so that we are so reliant on the fossil fuel industry to make sure that oil is at $50 a barrel, to make sure the big oil giants are making big profits. We should take this opportunity to reset our economy the way it works through cleaner technologies, through tech, through uh, industries that employ people for green jobs. Because if we go back to doing what we're doing, we're just going to accelerate another problem and throw really good money after bad. Who in Congress has the bandwidth right now, the political will to go in there and maybe tax gasoline or use the fact that it's so cheap to, to maybe create that, 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 that sort of tax to fund, to continue funding clean tech? It, it seems like there's no will or unanimity around this. I don't think right now because everybody's in triage and states are dealing with, you know, the fact that they're losing a ton of money right now and they're coming to the federal government, as California did, looking for help. So nobody's out there trying to fight the fight and wave the green flag, so to speak. But we'd like it would be great if once we were able to reset, we did it in a more thoughtful way. I just don't know if the political willpower will be there. But I know that the the consciousness of a lot of people, especially um, not just younger people, but people in general, realize that this is an opportunity to reset in a way that could that could actually help us out in the long run and and not re-contribute to the some of the problems that fossil fuels have brought us over the last decades. And you talk about big oil. I think there's a big Bloomberg or Business Week feature on it this week. Exxon Mobil, which which had, I think, not long ago, the most envied balance sheet in the world. Not long ago, it was the most highly valued company on the planet in the United States. Uh, at one point during the oil panic last month, its stock was down so much and people had so doubted its dividend that it was yielding 11.5%. Uh, that, again, that's another thing, another taboo out the door. That would have been unthinkable that these guys can't even raise money right now. And these guys were so ill-prepared for a world that's just, you know, you're, you're swimming in all this oil that you can't give away. It's remarkable. But the, the problem, is, and it's not just the oil giants, you know, I, I don't want to say we should completely abolish the energy sector. When you, when you think about oil at these levels at $20, $22 a barrel, it is not profitable for the oil industry to drill new wells or even produce any oil. Meanwhile, there's no demand for it. So, but there's this entire ecosystem around the oil complex that is the banks that loan money to the, uh, the, the drilling companies, that is the services companies that service the oil fields, that is the downstream companies that actually sell gasoline or deliver it to your home and, and, and uh, make sure you have heating oil. It is an entire complicated uh, economy all wrapped together. So it's not just the fact that oil only, the energy sector uh, contributes 2% to US GDP. It's a much bigger sector with tentacles throughout our financial system. So it's dangerous when the prices are at this, this low. They need to come up in order for this industry to survive and not impact other industries around it. Caleb, what's going to happen to retail? I'm looking at Michael Batnick on, on Twitter right now. He notes that JCPenney had a market cap of $20 billion in 2007. Today, it's at $60 million. And after bankruptcy, that might be at zero. Uh, what's going to happen to retail? What's going to happen to the mall? I had this big think the other day when my son was was driving with me to Starbucks. Uh, the Starbucks drive-through has been out of control. It seems like it's it's this this last comfort zone for all these people who are holed up at home. You don the mask and go in there and buy everything through the drive-through. Um, how are these strip malls going to look? How are these shopping centers going to look after this jolt? This was already a secular thing happening in retail moving online, but this is going to really, really murder a ton of balance sheets and force these brands to close a ton of stores. That and think about the impact to the commercial real estate market, where so much money has tied up in these strip malls or in these actual malls, but it's not just tied up for this year. It's tied up for 10, 15, 20 years out in these long-term mortgages. So that's going to have a big impact. But can you imagine walking through the mall and shopping with your family right now like you normally would, even with a mask? That doesn't sound very pleasant. So I'm pretty concerned about that. That said, on the when you look at bigger retail, there are some brands that have built a lot of brand loyalty 
uh, over the last couple of years, but really over the last few months have we've, as we've gone through this. When you think about you know, what some of these companies are doing, like a Nike when they're offering the free fitness app or a Lululemon um, that is now really appealing to men too. Some brands have found their stride even through a really difficult time. You're going to see a lot of brand loyalty. You're also going to see a lot of discount retail do well, which is what happens during recessions. When you look at some of the best performing stocks right now outside of technology, you're looking at those consumer staples and those discount retailers, those dollar generals of the world because they're here for when we have really rough economic times and people need to save money, they're going to do just fine. But in general, the strip mall and the shopping mall, I really have a lot of doubts about their future. And again, that doesn't cause a banking crisis unto itself. I can't remember the last true commercial real estate uh, financial crisis. Was it during the savings and loan crisis of the late 1980s where that alone, that kind of exposure took banks down? We know of how many banks were failing during the financial crisis, which was a residential mortgage crisis fundamentally. But have we in our investing lifetimes experienced this? No. I, I think savings alone is probably the most uh, the most recent time. But again, it wasn't this type of problem. And that's the most interesting thing about this economic crisis. It is so unique. It is so black swan. You can't compare it to 2007, 2008. You can't compare it to um, the depression. Um, you can compare the numbers in terms of job losses, in terms of you know manufacturing collapsing. But it's brought on by such a different reason and is having such a different impact on us that it's very hard to compare, but people try to do that all the time. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Caleb Silver, editor-in-chief of Investopedia. He's a veteran journalist. He was previously at CNN's business unit, which was formerly CNN-FN and Bloomberg Television. Uh, Caleb, I'd love to ask you about international. Now, it's been more than a lost decade for international stocks. If I'm talking about both emerging markets and developed markets, say Western Europe and Canada and the UK, that these guys were the cat's meow after our uh, huge uh, bubble kind of popped in, in 2000. Every, you know, I just mixed metaphors. You should really shoot that down. But um, what can I say? You're the host. I'll let you. <laughs> International has been dead money now for 13 years. Any indication that this is finally going to rotate? It's been a big question among us, you know, financial Twitter wonks, that when do you finally double down on international? When is the United States, especially because the United States is not cheap, the market is really up again and uh, earnings are plunging? That's a really good question, and I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, and for, for the following reasons. We're probably entering this period, we're already in this period of deglobalization, right? This uh, health crisis has showed us that globalization, global supply chains, when I need masks from China or Thailand tomorrow and I can't get them, that doesn't work. But there's always there's been this move uh, towards more nationalism and less global cooperation for a while now, and I think that that's going to be exacerbated in the coming years just because of the nature of what just happened, but you've, you've been feeling this for a while as, as countries try to insulate. That's not great for productivity, by the way. But also, when you look at what the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government has done in terms of stimulus, in terms of what it has tried to do to rescue us from this economic crisis and the, and the monetary policy moves made by the Fed, which we talked about earlier, that's not being duplicated in major economies around the world. They don't have the safety net of a Federal Reserve that can do whatever is necessary to rescue an economy, or at least they're not showing the will to do that. And that's gonna depress those global economies and those markets for a while. You may see breakouts here or there in parts of China or in some emerging market economies like Vietnam that was benefiting from the US-China trade war. But in general, the US is gonna to continue to outperform just from what I hear from the experts that I talk to. But when you look at the, you know, at the amount of support that's been put in place by our Fed, there's nothing like that anywhere else in the world. You know, I see this article by the brilliant Derek Thompson at The Atlantic, and he was he's kind of reading my mind this week. He writes, what's behind South Korea's COVID-19 exceptionalism? Seven weeks ago, South Korea and the U.S. had the same number of virus deaths. Today, South Korea has fewer than 300, and the U.S. has more than 70,000. Might I remind you that South Korea is still considered an emerging market if you look at the MSCI indices. And if you go back to the middle part of the last century, South Korea's economy was as big as Ghana's. Now it's one of the top 10 on the planet. And you can argue that from a public health perspective, it's clearly uh, prepared in a much better way for this pandemic than the United States did. Does that then lead to more cred for these economies as being legit investing destinations? I mean, after all, South Korea has Hyundai, has Samsung, has LG. These are, these are indispensable multinational brands right now. Why should it be considered an emerging market? 
I, I also agree with that. China, uh, South Korea benefits from having a huge customer right next door in China. So that economy has grown as the Chinese economy has grown up until this crisis. So it, it has benefited from that. And it's been very strong and it's been a, a, one of the stronger markets. But um, it also has some of the biggest companies in the world producing some pretty solid products. So I, I agree that it's maybe classified as an emerging market, but probably really isn't. Uh, it's one of the giants out there in the East, and there are probably a few more that are coming up just like it. In the few minutes we have left, Caleb, I'd love to talk about Investopedia and the broader kind of meaning of life of making content online. You guys are seeing record traffic numbers, and yet we're told that uh, never has, has advertising been so questioned right now. People are pulling back. It's the first discretionary expense. Are you getting paid for your work? Are your staffers getting paid for your their work that's commensurate with the incremental value they are adding during a crisis? Or is that disconnect going to beget kind of a whole other business model crisis? Do you know what I mean? I get it, but we don't pay for traffic. You know, if you're if you're an expert and you write for us and your article does well, you don't get paid anymore because your article did more. We pay us a flat fee. No, but I mean the advertising model is is do people see it out there that you guys are great? Everybody is uh, clicking on your work right now, and you you really uh, created a niche for yourself and the other sister brands um, under IAC. Does that mean that advertisers show up and bid up slots on your your website and then make it more worthwhile? for you and for contributors and for growth of the operation? I get what you mean. Oh, absolutely. And and we're we're very lucky because we have record traffic right now. But we at Investopedia and all the sites in the Dot Dash family are unique because we are high intent sites. Nobody is coming to Investopedia except, you know, geeks like me to browse around and read what we have. People come to us because they have an intent. How do I start investing? What do I do in a bear market? How do I deal with volatility with my 401k? That is a very specific question that they're asking. And we, because we're 21 years old and we spend a lot of money and a lot of time on improving our content, have those answers and they appear very high in Google. You look across the Dot Dash family of sites, you're going to see the same thing. What's the best way to uh, you know, roast a chicken? You're going to maybe come to the spruce for that. Uh, what's the best home router uh, for my home office? You might come to our tech site, uh, LifeWire, for that because we have high intense heights. And that's very different, Robin, from being in the news business where I grew up, where everything was push, extra, extra, read all about it. Hey, hey, I'm over here with this latest article. Read me, read me, read me. We're writing for that SEO, for that search traffic, for that intent traffic. And because people have a lot of intent right now, how do I navigate my life through this crisis in whatever manifestation? They're winding up on our sites, which is helping our traffic. And that's always good for business. But is that really good for business? Is is the advertising model correct for it? I know I'm walking out with you and talking shop, but it's one thing for the New York Times to really double down on getting subscriptions. Digital advertising has kind of fallen by the wayside as print advertising has fallen off a cliff. Um, you guys are going to increasingly rely on advertising as the business grows. Uh, is it is it still worthwhile? I mean, are they out there? Does advertising work for you? Is it a, is it something to grow into? Are you able to make the value proposition to um, advertisers out there that these are really committed and focused and quality eyeballs? Yeah, and I, and I think that's because of the of the vertical that we're in in finance and in health. Those two areas that are very important to people's lives. High intent users are ready to take action. You're not you're not browsing WebMD or Healthline or very well our health site looking uh, up rashes. You have an itch on your arm and you want to see what that is, and then you're going to go buy some cream. So we deliver a high intent audience. And in finance, you do the same thing. Rarely are people searching idly for something. They search and they want to learn because they're ready to take action. And we deliver um, a, a valid a validated audience to our advertisers who are the online brokers, who are banks, who are financial services companies. So if you're looking up the different types of health insurance you might want to buy or life insurance you might want to buy, and we have an advertiser on that page, they know that's a high intent user. So our business model is good in that respect because you're not idly here. You're here for a reason. And people that are here for a reason always intend to do something else. Talk to me about some of the more popular and, and peculiar, if you will, search items on your site. I mean, if I see Investopedia, I want to go in and search. I look for Meltup. I look for EBITDA, various other esoteric things that Wall Street people throw at me. But surely you're privy to some super funky ones. Oh, we get very funky search terms. Last year or a year and a half ago, all of a sudden, our search term for racketeering was spiking off the charts. I couldn't figure out what was happening. And we've always, that's always been a very popular article. People try to learn about racketeering, whether you're in law school or in banking. 
But it turns out that there was a rapper named Takashi 6x9 who was arrested in New York City on racketeering charges and weapons charges. And all of a sudden, everybody was talking about racketeering. And then the, the YouTube shows and the Instagram live shows were referring to Investopedia's definition of racketeering, all thanks to Takashi 6x9. <laughs> so thank you very much, sir. We, we always look at our most popular terms of the year. Now I'm starting to do it every week because they're fascinating, especially during this crisis. But at, uh, for 2019, we both had Jay-Z, you know, our, our term of Jay-Z and how he made his money and how he became a, a billionaire in the entertainment business and Karl Marx spiking in the same year. That's just a great, you know, snapshot as to how people are using our site and what they're looking for. Um, but we also get this question a lot, which is, what is money? And we have an article on that. And I think it's not just people like, actually, what is money? I don't know what this is. I think it's people asking the metaphysical question about what is money? What is this means of, of transaction? And I think they're asking about it as digital coins and tokens rise in the cryptocurrency universe to really understand what fiat is, what actual money is, what legal tender is. So it's a fascinating place to look at what people are trying to learn, and I'm never tired of looking that up. It's, it's Incidentally, awesome. has, has blockchain vindicated itself at all during this pandemic? I mean, we were told that it was the most, you know, it was the panacea. It was like the uh, uh, penicillin for anything that ails uh, uh, fiat currencies and fiat economies and printing presses. Yeah, I used to rub blockchain on my sore muscles, and that would help me uh, recover faster. <laughs> um, uh, no, blockchain, the underlying technology, obviously, for cryptocurrency, I think has a huge potential. Um, I think people oftentimes get confused between the bit, you know, Bitcoin or the tokens and blockchain, which is the underlying technology of that open digital ledger on the Internet. And I think now that we are, a lot of us are working from home and we have this sort of diffused economy, we're all not rushing into offices anymore. I think you're going to find blockchain applications across a lot of things, maybe real estate, uh, maybe acquiring um, art. You're going to see it in, in manifest in different places. And it might not be called that when you see it, but it's that digital ledger that makes a ton of sense. Bitcoin, incidentally, has done very well over the last several weeks, but I think Bitcoin and the stock market are disconnected and Bitcoin and the economy are disconnected. There are the people that love it and hold it and want to collect it and trade it, and then there are people that just want nothing to do with it. And there are people who want to have three or four hour shows dedicated to understanding what the hell Bitcoin is. You can never exactly find that, that, that Bitcoin fanboy who could explain it to you in 30 seconds or less. So uh, it's still elusive for me, sir. Good challenge for me. Next time you have me on, I'll have that for you. Caleb Silver. Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia, you are always welcome on this show. You do great work. Can you give us your, your Twitter specifics, your Facebook specifics, and some interesting links? Sure. It's I am at Caleb Silver, at C-A-L-E-B-S-I-L-V-E-R, one word. Um, you can find me there. You can find me on Investopedia. I'm in the About Us section. We, we want to make sure people know who our editors are and who are the real people working on our content. We're proud of that. Um, find me on LinkedIn. Find me on any social platform. I am here in New York City. And Robin, I've been a big fan of yours for years. Um, I love the, the show. I loved your work when you were back as a business journalist back in the day. And, uh, and I'm happy to call you a friend. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer this week is John Valentine. You can catch this show on NPR member station VPM News 88.9 on iTunes at link fulldradio.com. And now we are on Spotify. So, Mom, aren't you so proud of me? I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Bye.